The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. If you have a Bible now, and I hope you do, open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20 is where we'll be uh, parking this morning. I titled this morning's message, True Friendship. True Friendship. If you've traveled as much as I have in my life, um, and as I alluded to with Gary here just now, you're living in different parts of the world, you begin to notice some different idiosyncrasies uh, from different cultures. For example, uh, if you've lived in the United States a long time or all your life, you might not re- recognize, but Americans are really fond of using the word friend. Friend. And sometimes we use the word when it doesn't fit the occasion. You, know, you meet somebody 10 minutes ago at a wedding reception. You don't know anything about the person other than their first name. You don't know uh, where they live. You don't know whether they're married, whether they have children. You don't know where they work. Um, and somebody else comes and joins the conversation, and what do we say? We say, hey, let me introduce you to my new friend. His name's George. And George is all you know about that individual. But really, is, is George a friend? Just like that? You know, on, on Facebook... Some of us have hundreds, maybe even thousands of friends. I, I looked at my Facebook. I'm not much on Facebook, but I, look, I, have over, I have over a thousand friends on Facebook. And then as I thought about it, I said, do I, do I really have a thousand friends? I mean, real friends? People I can call in the middle of the night and say, hey, I'm hurting. Can you help me? When, when we lived in Germany, we, we learned that you don't call someone that you've only recently met a friend. No, no matter how well the conversation has gone so far, you don't call them a friend or a point. You call them a bacanta, which, is, which means an acquaintance. Now, for the record, Germans aren't trying to be... Sometimes they're known as a particularly cold type of people, but they're not being cold in saying that. They're, they're not trying to be distant in calling you an acquaintance. Rather, what they're doing is they're protecting what it means or they're valuing what it means to be called a friend. Because if everybody's a friend, listen, if everybody's a friend, then no one's really a friend. And so when a German refers to you as their friend, that normally means that the relationship, if you will, has has gone up a notch. It's entered a a new level. There's more openness with one another now. Now you're friends, whereas before you were only acquaintances. Friendship has a meaning, and again, it typically means more than just somebody you met ten minutes ago. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 18, verse 24, you don't need to turn there. Just read that one verse. It says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. According to Proverbs, chapter 10, this section, so from 10 all the way through chapter 18, that whole section of the book of Proverbs was written by Solomon. Solomon is the son of David. And as I was preparing this week, as I was reading over chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, I began to wonder, I said, could it be, is it possible that perhaps young Solomon, as he was growing up, he, there he sat on his dad's lap, 
as his dad told him stories about his best friend. As his dad told him stories about a guy named Jonathan. Could those stories perhaps have been the inspiration of that proverb in Solomon's own life? I'm speculating now, but could they have been? This morning, as we turn our attention to 1 Samuel chapter 20, we're going to see one of the great friendships in all of the Bible. So if you're there, say amen. All right. We even have an amen from the front row up here. That's right. Good job, Lydia. Good job, Lydia. All right. Here we go. Follow along as I read. It's 42 verses. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without, dis- without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, Good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap, And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. 
And behold, I will send the young man, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the young man, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no dangers. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go. For the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, Behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul didn't say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And then the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot. And Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is it not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan, the boy, gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. 
Your Word living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray, Lord Jesus, now in the just few moments we have to meditate and think about these words, that You would use this time to mold us and shape us evermore into the image of Your Son, Jesus. Help us to take these timeless truths and conform us so that we might better reflect who You are and how You love us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my central idea this morning is this. In His grace, God sometimes gives us a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In His grace, God sometimes gives us a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I have three points I want to make this morning. The first point is Jonathan and David. Jonathan and David. More than half of our text this morning is a conversation. It's it's a dialogue between Jonathan and David. And for those of you who may be just now joining us on our walk through 1 Samuel, Jonathan is King Saul's adult son. Jonathan, as far as Saul is concerned, is heir to the throne. But because of Saul's repeated disobedience, because Saul failed to obey the Word of the Lord, God has already torn the kingdom from Saul and from his family. And God has already sent Samuel to anoint David as the future king of Israel. Now, Saul doesn't know that yet. For sure, he's beginning to realize it as we keep working our way, but he still hasn't fully grasped that idea. And Saul is becoming more and more detached from reality. If these events were happening in our day, we would say that Saul was, wasn't rather mentally well. Saul would have made Vladimir Putin look like a calm, level-headed, benevolent leader. I mean, this is, this is where Saul is right now. In chapter 19, we looked at this last week, Saul finally went public with his obsession to kill David. And in the early part of that chapter, as he told his son, told Jonathan, I want David dead, Jonathan appeared to have talked some reason into his dad. And Saul swears to Jonathan that he's not going to kill David. And that's the last we hear from Jonathan in chapter 19. Now, of course, Saul doesn't keep his word. Saul repeatedly tries to have David killed throughout the rest of chapter 19, which brings us now here to the beginning of chapter 20. David is at his wit's end. He, he makes his way back from the latest attempt of Saul to kill him. And he says to, he says to Jonathan, his best friend, you can almost picture the scene in your mind. He, you know, what have I done? What, what is my guilt? I don't understand it. Why, why is this man obsessed with wanting me dead? For the life of him, he doesn't understand why Saul is trying to kill him. And Jonathan, remember the last thing that Jonathan heard was Saul swearing he's not going to kill David. And so Jonathan says, you know, far from it. You're not going to die. It's not so. That's not, you, you must be misinterpreting the facts, David. That's, it's not really going to happen. Saul, Dad told me he's not going to. He swore he's not going to kill you. Maybe, maybe it only looks like Saul wants you dead, dead, David. See, at this point in Saul, excuse me, in Jonathan's mind, it can't be true that Saul really wants David dead. I mean, his dad had made him a promise, and what kind of dad would renege on a promise like this? So David takes it up a notch. In verse 3, you notice it says David vows 
That is, he made a promise. Some of your translations might even say there that David swears that what he's saying is true. And now he's got Jonathan's attention. Now, mind you, Jonathan's still not 100% convinced. That will come later in our passage. But at least he's listening now. And so Jonathan says to David, whatever you say, whatever you say, I'll do it for you. And so the two of them hatch a plan. David's going to pretend to be away visiting family while he's supposed to be dining with the king. And, you know, if, if Saul's like, eh, who cares? You know, he's, he's away. No, no big deal. If, if, that's, if that's Saul's reaction, then, okay, no harm, no foul. Everything's going to be wonderful. But if Saul gets angry that David's gone, then Jonathan will know that something's up. And their friendship, their friendship is so close, David and Jonathan, that David says, and I'm, I paraphrase here, but he says, you know, if Saul is angry with me, if he has reason to, if he has reason to say that I'm guilty and he is angry, David tells Jonathan, he says, Jonathan, I'd rather you kill me than you take me to your dad. Now that might sound crazy to our ears, but David's basically saying to Jonathan, you know, Jonathan, you're one of the bright spots in my life. And so if I'm going to have to die anyways, I want it to come from the hand of somebody I love. I want, it to, I want somebody who respects me to do it. Okay? To which Jonathan then replies, he says, he says, you know, far be it from you. If I know that my dad wants you dead, am I not going to tell you that? In other words, if my dad is planning on killing you, not, not only am I not going to kill you, but I'm going to make sure that you get out safely. Jonathan is actually willing to risk his life for this endeavor. If you look down at verse uh, 14, he says to David, if I am still alive. Show me steadfast love. Or show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. You see, Jonathan knows that if David is right about his dad wanting to kill him, then Jonathan helping David is nothing short of high treason in Saul's eyes. It's, it's a death sentence. But Jonathan's willing to take that risk for his friend. Beloved, has God been gracious enough to give you a friend like that? Those friends don't come by easy. Treasure that friend. What you notice how Jonathan wraps up this portion of his talk. I already read verse 14 where you know, he says, if I'm still alive, but follow there to verse 15 and look with me. Jonathan, he's still speaking to David. And he says, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. He's telling David this. Don't cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And it seems like a strange thing for two friends to be saying to one another, but you know, what's Jonathan getting at? Here's what's happening. Jonathan sees what's happening. Jonathan is acknowledging that David is actually going to be the future king. And so he tells him then, as, as king, don't cut off your faithful love from me and from my house forever. As the Lord cuts off your enemies from you, don't do that to me. We're friends. We, have this, we might have a common enemy in King Saul, but we, we're the best of friends. And very tellingly, in verse 16, we're told that Jonathan makes a covenant. This is interesting. Jonathan makes a covenant not just with David, but with the house of David. 
with David and all of his descendants. Because David's house is the one that's going to be established forever. Not Saul's. And so in verse 17, David swears by his love for Jonathan that he's going to keep his word. And then in verses 18 and following, I'm not going to get into all this just for time's sake. Jonathan, they, they, they rehearse their plan about how, how they're going to get the news to David. And it's a fairly selfish thing. You know, they're going to go out and practice shooting um, arrows or pretend to be practice shooting arrows. It's pretty self-explanatory. But this section ends, notice this, the section ends with Jonathan saying, the Lord is between you and me forever. He's saying the Lord is a witness between you and me forever. And with that, Jonathan turns his attention now to Saul, which is our point number two. We see Jonathan and Saul. This is picking up in verse 24 and following. David hides himself in the field as they had planned. The, the new moon comes. That's, by the way, in the ancient Israel uh, culture. That's how they would determine the months. The months were, were following the lunar calendar. And so the new moon comes. It's a new month. And the royal family sits down to eat. And Saul's there. Jonathan's there. Abner, who's one of Saul's generals, is there. But David's chair is empty. Now, on this first night of the month, it doesn't arouse any suspicion from Saul. Saul, you know, eh, maybe David's unclean. That's, that's why he's not here. But when David doesn't show up on day two, Saul is suspicious. And in verse 27, he asks, you know, where, where is David? And it's at this time when jo- Jonathan tells his dad that the agreed upon response for why David is, you know, he, he's at some family gathering. That's, that's where he's at. But Saul, is, as crazy as he is, he's not a dummy. Right? He's not a dummy and he's not buying it. He knows good and well that David isn't at a family gathering and he responds to Jonathan with some fierce anger. Look at verse 30. He says to Jonathan, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Now, I'm just going to guess here that you don't need me or any other Bible scholar telling you that Saul isn't paying his son a compliment here, right? He is absolutely throwing his son under the bus. But he's not done. He's not done yet. In verse 31, Saul um, expresses really his deepest concern. He says, as long as this son of Jesse lives, I have no hope of passing my kingdom on to you. You see, Saul is looking for a legacy. He's looking for a family dynasty. He wants his family's name to carry on to the future kings of Israel. And he sees that slipping through his fingers. And whose fault is that? Well, we know it's Saul's fault. But in Saul's mind, it's the son of Jesse's fault. It's not his fault. It's, son of, it's the son of Jesse. And did, did you notice that in the text? When, whenever... Saul refers to David. It's always the son of Jesse. He can't even bring himself to utter the man's name. Throughout this entire chapter, it's the son of Jesse. And, it, and that just led me down a rabbit trail this week as I was preparing. I, I said, does this continue for the rest of his life? And, you know, with, 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 with the exception of three occurrences, Saul never refers to David as David again. Those three, three occurrences, next, we'll see one of them next week. When, when Saul promises to kill anybody who was helping David, that's hardly a compliment, right? 
And so he uses David's name there. And then there are two times, and we'll, we'll get to this as we continue our working, but there's two times when Saul is trying to hunt David down, and David has these two golden opportunities to take Saul out, to kill him. And David, both times, says, I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. It doesn't kill him. And when that word gets back to Saul that David had a chance to kill him, but he chose not to, on those two occasions, Saul calls him my son, David. But other than those three occasions, Saul has no use whatsoever for David. He won't even speak his name. He wants him dead. And so he tells Jonathan, why don't you bring him to me so that I can kill him? Which leads Jonathan to ask a question that with hindsight, he's probably wishing he didn't ask. Now you and I, to you and I, it's an obvious question, right? Look at the verse 32. It's an obvious question. Jonathan asks, why should he be put to death? What has he done? It's a reasonable question, right? Before you kill somebody, you have to say, well, why should this person be dead? How does Saul answer the question? Not with a word, with a spear. Saul throws his spear at his own son. He tries to kill his own son because his son had asked him that question. And so here in the midst of, of his entire world falling apart, I was, I was reflecting on Saul's life. I reflected over what's been happening over the last few chapters as I was thinking this morning. This is the fourth time in the last three chapters that Saul has tried to kill somebody with his spear. Three times he's tried to kill David. And now he's trying to kill Jonathan. All four occasions he missed. Yeah, and as I was reflecting on that, I began to chuckle a bit. And I thought, well, you know, maybe Saul ought to pick a different weapon because he's clearly not proficient with the spear. But then as I, as I thought about it, I realized I think I, I was missing the greater point here. I'm, I'm missing the bigger picture. Because the larger picture here is one of Saul's complete ineptitude. Saul can't do anything right. God's Spirit has already left Saul. He can't even throw a spear at a guy who's playing a musical instrument and strike him. Love is just further evidence of this, the total collapse of his life and his kingdom. I wonder, beloved, do you, is there any evidence, is there any evidence in, in, in our life, in your life, in my life, where, where we, that would lead us to think we're, we're, we're trying the best we can to, to put up this facade like I have it all together, but there's evidence all around that says our life is crumbling. For anybody who had eyes to see in Saul's life, there was, there was ample evidence. But Saul chooses to ignore it. I pray that we won't ignore evidence in our own life that if our lives are crumbling at the seams, that we would run from that. The spear incident does have one. It does. It does accomplish one good thing. It is the spear, and this is the thing that finally convinces Jonathan that his dad is indeed determined to kill David. And so Jonathan leaves the family table. He's angry. He's grieved. He's disgraced. I love my dad. I absolutely love my dad. I adore that man. He is one of the hardest working, most honorable men I know. I, I'm 55 years old and I think if I could grow up to be half the man that he is, I would be happy. 
I can't even begin to imagine the soul-crushing realization that Jonathan was feeling at this moment. I mean, he had had higher hopes for his dad, right? Earlier, earlier in the text, he had even said, you know, to David, you know, may, may the Lord bless you as He's blessed my dad. Saul, or excuse me, Jonathan had these really high, high view of his dad. And David, his best friend, to realize that your dad, your own dad, is determined to kill your best friend. That's not something you get over in a day or two, right? That's something that sits with you day and night. It's a soul-crushing realization. As I thought about it, I thought, where, where do we turn? What do we do when our world is rocked like that? What do we, what's next? And I thought, well, I hope that God in His grace might give me a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Because let me tell you something, beloved. I'm not meant to walk through times like that alone. And neither are you. We're created to live in community. And this is one of the chief places that we find that community. It's here in the family of God. We're not meant to walk through difficult times by ourselves. A few years ago, something happened in my life that rocked my world. That event was and it remains to this day one of the hardest things I have ever gone through in my life. And I don't wish that to happen to anybody. I still remember just... It it happened at my home. And I remember just... kind of being like... I I don't know what PTSD is like. And I I don't mean to, to... belittle somebody's experience who is that but I just I just remember like being shell shocked. I, I I didn't I didn't know what to do. And so what did I do? I looked out my front door, literally, I looked out my front door and I looked across the street where I knew I had a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And I called that man right there, Lewis Knight up. And I poured out my heart to him. Now Lewis is a good and godly man. He didn't and he couldn't make my hurt go away. But he could and he did walk with me through my hurt. He was there to offer me counsel. And not just Lewis. Jerry was also a brother in that time. One of the reasons I entered into pastoral ministry so long ago is I like to help people. I really do. It brings me great joy to you know somebody to come they have they have a problem it doesn't bring great joy that people have a problem but it brings me great joy that that maybe if i if god can use me in some way to help this person navigate that problem i was more naive when i entered pastoral ministry than i am today i used to think that well i can all i can i can i'm a pretty smart guy i can help you solve your problems but now that i've been in pastoral ministry over 20 years i've learned a lot of valuable lessons along the way um Here's one of the lessons I've learned. Some of you maybe have seen the movie Rudy. Have you seen the movie Rudy? Okay, a few of you have seen the movie Rudy. Um, there's that scene in Rudy. Um, if you've seen it, if you haven't seen it, you can watch it later. It'll be it'll bless your soul. Uh, but Rudy, he's got one last chance to get into Notre Dame. He wants to play football for Notre Dame. If he doesn't make it in that semester, he's not going to get in. And so he's talking to the priest. Is there anything I can do? Anything else I can do? 
And the priest says to Rudy, he says, after 35 years of religious studies, I've come up with only two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I'm not Him. Beloved, there are some problems that we face that only God can solve. And God will solve those problems on His timetable, not ours. When I spoke with Lewis that day, he didn't try to do what only God could do. But God did put him there in my life so that I didn't have to walk through that moment by myself. What are you going through right now? You might be facing a problem that only God can solve. And and I'm not suggesting by any stretch that you don't have a role to play in helping that problem find a solution. After all, I mean, Jonathan, he plays a role, right? Jonathan, he's not sitting on his hands. He's playing a role uh, with his dad here. But the problem that Jonathan was facing was ultimately bigger than Jonathan was. The problem that I was facing that I'm still facing from that situation is bigger than I am. And the problem that you're facing it may be bigger than you are as well. And so what do you do? Again, I, I hope you have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Do you, do you have a friend who... When your mind takes you to dark places, places that you'd rather not go, do you have a friend in that moment who will point you back to God and to God's faithfulness and that will lead you to trust in Jesus? As a pastor, I want to help people fix their problems, but some of the problems are bigger than my ability to fix. And so God gives us friends that we can walk together this life as we press one another on to be more and more like Jesus. That's point number two. Point number three. We're wrapping it up here. It's Jonathan and David again. It's the end of the story, verses 35 through 42. It's now the morning of the third day. It's clear to Jonathan. Saul wants David's dead. Um, and so it's Jonathan's sad duty now to relay that message to David. Jonathan is a servant boy. They go out to the field. They're going to practice shooting those arrows. Um, the boy picks up all the arrows and Jonathan gives the boy his weapons. You know, the, the message has been clearly given to David. You know, Saul does want you dead. And then verse 41, after the boy's gone, David gets up from behind the stone heap and he falls on his face to the ground. He bows before Jonathan three times. And we're told that they both kiss one another and they weep with one another. And then we're told, this is interesting, we're told that they, David wept more. So I read that, I thought, you know, it's an interesting line, isn't it? I mean, this wasn't a contest. I mean, it's not like, I can cry more than you can. I mean, that's, that's not what's happening here, right? Why, why are we told that David wept the most? As I reflected on that this week, I think I understand why David wept the most. I think David wept the most because he realized that Jonathan had given up the most. Let me explain. David had been a poor shepherd boy. He didn't grow up expecting to be the king. He wasn't even the leader amongst his siblings. He was the runt of the litter. He, he, remember, he wasn't even, in chapter 16, he wasn't even called in from the field when Samuel came to the house. He, he, of course nobody's going to pick David, right? He had no dreams of being a king. Jonathan, on the other hand, 
was born to be a king. He was raised to be a king. All his life he was expected to be the next king. And Jonathan loved and respected his dad. It's clear when you read the text, until that, at least until that spear incident, right? He, always, he assumed the best motives of his dad until it was proven otherwise. In fact, if David hadn't been in the picture, I think we can safely assume that Jonathan and his dad would have gotten along great and Jonathan would have been the second king of Israel. But Jonathan gave all of that up. He just gave it up. He gave up his relationship with his father. He gave up his royal throne. And why did he do that? Why did he give it all up? He gave it up for David. And David knew that. That's why David wept the most. Beloved, as we come to the end of our service today, I want us to remember another son. Another son who left his father's side. I want us to remember a son who left the glory of heaven to become a man. We remember a son who became a man so that he might become a servant to other men. We remember a son who ultimately and willingly gave his life so that others might live. This morning we remember Jesus. So I was thinking about this passage. I just reflected on all the parallels between Jesus and Jonathan in our passage today. Not to say that there's a perfect parallel there, but there's lots of parallels. I just want to close by saying this to you. I hope you take this to heart. Jesus is a friend to sinners like you and I. And Jesus sticks closer than a brother. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your grace and Your kindness to us. I thank You, Father, that You give us brothers, sisters who walk through life's difficulty, who walk through life's trials with us. Lord, I thank You personally for, for men like Lewis and Jerry and, and my hour of deepest, darkest need. They were there for me when I reached out. They couldn't make it better, but they could walk with me through that trial. And Father, I know of other examples, even here within our congregation, of others doing that. What a grace that is. To know that You have given us one to each other. That we have covenanted together as a family so that we can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Thank You for that blessing. But we thank You most of all for Your Son, Jesus. Because it's through Jesus, it's through His death, burial, and resurrection. It's through Him taking on the penalty, the, the burden of our sin. It's through that that we've been adopted into His family so that we can actually call one another brother and sister so that we actually are to one another as brothers and sisters. And so help us to walk in faith with one another. Help us to press one another on 
and to encourage one another in Christ. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.